This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Kriti Gupta is over in New York. Uh, we have got lots to talk about. We need to talk about UK politics uh, this evening, Kriti. We also need to talk about what's happening in these markets. Uh, US equity markets going nowhere. We are waiting for 2 p.m. Eastern, I understand, where we're going to get the Fed minutes. We absolutely are. It's really important when we talk about what this bond market is going to be doing. 391 on the 10 year yield, not doing a whole lot, but no. that's going to be the game changer. So, what, it, it, my question is are we actually going to see some, some action? In some, some people's minds, these Fed minutes could be a bit of a dud, i.e., the information that the economic data has changed so much since then, um, as a result of which actually they're not going to provide us very much. But I guess that's only true. If the if the minutes are dovish, if they're hawkish and they were hawkish with the data they had, then what are they going to be thinking now? Yeah. And then remember, this is kind of the precursor to Friday's data. The PCE deflator is the real kind of Super Bowl for this week's trading uh, idea. But uh, in the interim, while we're waiting for that PCE deflator number and really all the traders start to play Fed chair, basically, uh, this is going to be kind of some insight. But I mean, as Mike McKee, our international economics and policy correspondent, would say, Markets are going to react the way they want to react, and they're going to find something in those minutes to react to. Absolutely. We'll talk to Mike a little bit later on. We'll get his take on what is happening here. The FTSE 100, just for clarity, uh, down by around six-tenths of 1% today. Uh, in terms of where the real kind of weight to the downside came from, Shell, Rio Tinto, uh, which disappointed today in terms uh, of its returns to shareholders. It was down pretty hard, down by 3.56. Shell was the biggest drag. HSBC was also a drag, but BP, Glencore, AstraZeneca, some real heavyweights today, tracking a little lower. And Burberry a little lower, down by 4.32% today. Apparently, it's Lace's fashion show not going down well on social media. Uh, so that stock being marked down on the back of that. We need to talk about as well what's going on with Brexit. We need to talk about what's happening with strikes. Uh, it looks like we're going to have another tube strike as well on the day of the budget in March. Uh, we'll get an update on what is happening uh, with British politics. PMQs were today. Brexit, a big story within that. We'll talk about that in just a moment. First, let's get some headlines with Charlie Powell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Got to begin with mass transit and the tube strike. London's tube drivers will strike for 24 hours on March 15th with commuters facing another spell of disruption. The strike on the underground will be followed by several days of industrial action on the UK's wider rail network. Unions remain in dispute with bosses over pay levels, working conditions and pensions. The tube strike, as Guy mentioned, is planned for the day of the next budget when Chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt will update Parliament on the government's fiscal policies. Ambulance staff and thousands of other workers in Britain's National Health Service will stage a new strike on March 8th, even after nurses suspended their own industrial action and agreed to enter intensive talks with ministers over pay. The UK has surpassed India as the world's sixth largest equity market for the first time in almost nine months as a weaker pound boosted the appeal of heavyweight exporters trading in London and Adani Group-led jitters weighed on stocks in Mumbai. And that is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. 
Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. So the strike story front and centre here in the UK. As we've just heard, we're going to get another tube strike. But other areas potentially look like we could see some resolution. The nurses, obviously, front and centre there. Uh, there was a headline first thing this morning suggesting maybe the government was considering uh, a 5% pay rise to deal with these strikes, to put them to bed, to finally uh, put them behind us. But that has been pushed back uh, by government uh, officials today. We also, of course, had Prime Minister's questions today. The strikes issue issue was was there but the issue of brexit when are we going to get a deal on northern ireland taking uh, a, a lot of the time during prime minister's questions uh, it's keir starmer pushing back continuously uh, and asking key questions uh, to the prime minister during pmqs the prime minister not that keen really to talk about this subject not really answering many of keir starmer's questions it felt like an old school pmqs from a few years ago when brexit absolutely dominated but this is what the prime minister had to say about Northern Ireland. We are still in active discussions with the European Union, but he should know that I am a Conservative, a Brexiter and a Unionist, and any agreement that we reach needs to tick all three boxes. It needs to ensure sovereignty for Northern Ireland, it needs to safeguard Northern Ireland's place in our Union, and it needs to find practical solutions to the problems faced by people and businesses. I will be resolute in fighting for what is best for Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. What I am doing is talking and listening to the people of Northern Ireland. That is the right thing to do. It's to make sure that we can respond and resolve to the concerns of the unionist communities and businesses in Northern Ireland. And that is what I will keep doing. Joining us now, Bloomberg UK politics reporter Ellen Milligan. Ellen, Keir Starmer pushing the Prime Minister, um, knowing that he wasn't going to get an answer, but trying to kind of uh, to, trying to sort of point out the areas uh, that the uh, the Prime Minister is going to feel uncomfortable on. What do we actually learn today? The Prime Minister didn't feel really that confident in terms of answering many many of these questions about this deal on Northern Ireland. What does that tell us about where we are with that deal? Well, as Keir Starmer said in the chamber today, these are the questions that lots of people, including Sunak's own Conservative MPs, have been asking of the Prime Minister in their private meetings with him over the last couple of days when he's been explaining the outline of this agreement that he's reached with the EU. Um, This came off the back um, of a meeting between the European Research Group, the kind of hardline Brexiteers who um, scuppered Theresa May's deal back in 2019, and the Democratic Unionist Party, who are blocking the formation of Stormont in Northern Ireland over the protocol. So really what they're looking for is answers on exactly the questions that Keir Starmer is asking. What role would EU laws Uh, regulations play in this new agreement and also um, whether there is indeed a deal ready to unveil. Ellen, as an American, I have to say I really studied for these PMQs. Guy Johnson would be so proud of me if he knew how much uh, how much I looked into <laughs> this more than me. ahead of this radio <laughs> hosting gig. Uh, Ellen, what's so striking to me is that, I mean, it's so it felt like it was a little bit of a heated debate. But at the end of the day, there isn't actually a written agreement yet. So what exactly are they arguing here? So what we've reported is that a technical agreement, so an agreement between negotiators like officials um, in the UK and the EU is all but agreed. I think there's a few like legal, it's being put into legal text as we speak. But um, the reason the government can say there's no actual agreement yet is because um, it's not had the political sign-off that um, Sunak thinks is required, whether from himself or whether from his party or whether from unionists. 
And what we're, we're kind of in a holding pattern now. Um, they wanted to unveil and announce this deal on Tuesday. I think they're pushing a bit more um, for, for the EU to concede on a few more points, maybe about giving Northern Ireland more of a say in, the, um, in e, any new EU, EU laws that apply to them. Um, but at the moment, the DUP and the ERG are demanding the legal text. They won't give their seal of approval until their lawyers um, examine it. And, and for the time being, it looks like this announcement will be pushed back to next week. Ellen, how close are we to a deal with the unions to resolve these strikes? There was a headline first thing this morning, I think it was in the FT, talking about a sort of 5% pay rise. That's been pushed back. What do we know? Yeah, that 5% pay rise, really, it it was from an internal uh, Treasury memo which was saying any pay rise above 5% would stoke inflation. So it wasn't really the Treasury saying um, we're willing to give... Um, public sector's workers 5%. It was about, it was their calculation on, on what would stoke inflation. In fact, what we had yesterday was um, the, the government presented evidence to pay review bodies for um, saying that they can't afford any more than 3.5% um, pay rise for next year um, for public sectors across, across the spectrum. And always great to talk with you. Thank you very much indeed for updating us. We really appreciate it. Bloomberg's Ellen Milligan uh, on what is happening in British politics. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Uh, Lloyd's Banking Group um, bouncing back a little bit as the day has progressed. Uh, the company coming out, not exactly a great net interest margin outlook. And I think that was the concern for investors. But the bank is actually painting a fairly positive picture relative to where we've been recently in terms of where it expects the UK economy to go. Bloomberg's Anna Edwards spoke with Lloyd's Chief Executive Officer, Charlie Nunn. We're very focused on our savings customers and and our borrowing customers. I think the important point of context for savers is uh, about 80% of our 26 million customers have less than £5,000 in their deposits accounts and savings accounts, and 65% have less than £1,000. So in terms of the cost of living and those that are struggling to make ends meet, uh, we have a real focus on those customers. For those customers that do have money to invest, uh, we've been very focused on the savings market. As you'll have seen uh, at about Q3 last year, when base rates got to about 3%, we saw a much more dynamic savings market. Consumers were looking for returns. And Lloyds Banking Group um, has started to uh, put savings products on the shelf that can meet the needs of those customers. There are savings Mm. products ranging between 2% and 5.25% for those that are looking to, to build their savings over time. And you've said this morning that you're seeing more competition in that space, Charlie. What kind of businesses are are providing that competition at this time? Uh, The savings market in the UK is a very dynamic, competitive market. And uh, there's a a set of smaller financial institutions that offer competitive rates, uh, investment firms, but also the major high street banks. And and obviously Lloyds Banking Group is the biggest retail and commercial uh, bank in the UK. So we are in the latter group. But you've seen dynamic competition around all of those players in financial services. Can I ask you about the the bad debt story over at Lloyd's? Any sign of of distress in your books? Clearly, you've given us an update on provisioning today. But what are you seeing? Yes, the overall um, uh, 
uh, economic environment is resilient for our customers, both for individuals, families and businesses. And as we exited 2022, you, as you said, we did increase our provisions uh, around our economic scenarios largely for 2023 and 2024, but we continue to see very resilient customers. There are some very specific areas where we're seeing customers start to miss early payments, but it's still by product significantly below or below the levels we saw pre-COVID. So very resilient customer behavior. CEO of Lloyd's talking to Anna a little bit earlier on. Critty, it's interesting. The, the UK economic outlook was seen as being incredibly grim until relatively recently. Um, you're now, for instance, Lloyd's are talking about a relatively mild recession that could get pushed out until next year. Uh, you've got also City out with the note saying that it expects UK inflation to fall to just above 2% by the end of this year. And basically the reason for that is falling gas prices. Gas, natural gas prices have come down really sharply. Uh, and this is at the kind of the sharp end of the, uh, the cost of living crisis the UK has been experiencing. But it's abating really fast. It really is. And I mean, this compares to the Bank of England's forecast, where they're saying at the same time that City says it's going to fall about 2.3%, the Bank of England says it's going to be still 4%. So there is quite the divergence in terms of some of these forecasts. But to me, Guy, the question is not necessarily about energy prices, but also about housing as well. Is that the next shoe to drop when it comes to not just the UK, but Europe broadly? Well, yeah, and, and that's a huge factor. Like the, the for the UK, it is a much more direct transmission mechanism than we see over in the United States. Most yeah. people are are either on variable mortgages or their mortgage deals will will roll over within two or three years at, at the most. So yeah, that's that's going to be a, that's going to be a huge factor. We're going to hear from Catherine Mann tomorrow. Now she's one of the the arch hawks on the Monetary Policy Committee. Interestingly enough, formerly of Citigroup. Um, where she was a, uh, a very senior economist. She's been super hawkish. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not she's starting to suggest maybe actually this is an economy that doesn't need aggressive rate hikes from the MPC. Yeah, and it's interesting that we talk about those energy prices because I remember the discourse even just six weeks ago at the end of uh, the kind of fourth quarter of 2022, a lot of the conversation was, okay, we've escaped the brutal winter Europe this time around. Will we escape a brutal yeah. winter season in 2023? And I don't think, and we still don't know that. Right. It's amazing how weather dependent, not only your economy in the United States and our economies here in Europe are at the moment. And that's maybe been the huge factor that the, the thing that investors have missed has been just the impact that the weather has had. Up next, we're going to hear from Rio Tinto posting numbers a little bit earlier on today. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Kriti Gupta over in New York. Now, one of the reasons why the FTSE 100 underperformed today was because of Rio Tinto, a big drag uh, on the uh, on the index. The, the minor dropping on a dividend cut. Also, the profit outlook. Um, Matt Miller and I, first thing this morning, had the opportunity to catch up with the company's CEO, uh, Jacob Straussholm. Um, we started off by, by talking about the fact that maybe investors just need to get used to the idea that this company will be producing lower returns. We actually uh, reported a very good result uh, today. Uh, it's um, one of our best in history. And we declared the second highest ordinary dividend in the 150 years history of Rio Tinto, but it was lower than last year. And that was simply because we were having record high prices in 2021. But if you compare to almost any other year, 2022 was, uh, was an, an excellent result. And may I remind you, the return on 
our capital employed and we are a very physical uh, uh, long-term business is was 25%. So it was a very, very good financial results that we had in the year. And we also, during the year, improved our operational performance. So uh, you are separating, though, some businesses, and I want to get down to that. The coal um, from the copper, uh, uh, or uh, sorry, uh, the rival miner is separating some business of coal and the copper. This is Tech Resources, and you have um, long admired some of their copper mines. Do you think there's an opportunity for you to get in here and make some purchases? I mean, you talk about the investment, uh, the CapEx. Mm -hmm. It's a very uh, long-term business. D does this make sense to you? So what we are doing is we are working and shaping our portfolio and actually last year was probably uh, the year where we shaped our portfolio the most for at least the last 10-15 years. Uh, but it was mainly about developing things we already had in the cupboard, uh, development such as, uh, as uh, the oil Tolgoi mine in Mongolia. But we also acquired uh, uh, the minority shareholders, took TRQ private. We did an acquisition of a project in Argentina of Lithium uh, Rincon. But some of the internal developments meant uh, more iron ore in, in Western Australia, roads rich, uh, Western range. So we had a lot of, of, of ongoing business development. I don't really believe in that this company needs uh, major acquisitions, but we are actively looking at smaller things that could work for us. But my focus is always, are we the right owner? Does it make industrial sense for us? And uh, what guides us right now is the demands from our customers. And we can still strengthen our business in battery materials and copper, etc. But, uh, but I think that's what you can see we did last year, and we will try to continue to do so. But we are not growing for the sake of being, becoming bigger. It has to, we, has to, we have to be able to create value, otherwise we won't uh, pursue any m and You talk about what is happening with battery materials. You, you've talked in the past about the fact that you would like to acquire lithium uh, and lithium mines. We do, though, have some of the big EV car makers. Tesla's the name that springs to mind, also actively trying to pursue those products. They are willing to pay, and they are willing to pay handsomely. And I'm wondering, when you talk about value, whether or not you think you're going to be able to compete with those other potential owners of those assets. Well, we certainly don't want to uh, overpay, but what I suppose, my assumption is that what the car maker wants is lithium. And uh, you also have to have the competences of being a miner. So maybe, maybe there's something that can be done uh, together. And that's what we are doing right now. We are selling lithium to some of the car makers, uh, whereas we are the miners of it, because that's, that's what we are good at. We, we, don't, we are not going to go into car making nor battery making for that sake. <laughs> but, but we want to both extract and process lithium. Let's talk a bit about the cost base. Um, one of the things that makes a good miner is managing the cost base, and that is incredibly challenging right now. Jacob, where do you see, what kind of inflation are you seeing right now, and do you see any signs of it peaking? Yes, yes, I do see, uh, see peaking. If you look at our results uh, last year compared to the previous year, then uh, there was a significant increase in cost. And it was basically in three areas. One area is energy, second area is ge general inflation, and the third area is very high increases in input prices to our aluminium business. But I do think that we are seeing now, and we have seen lately, that energy prices have been falling. So we're not going to see that increase this year. 
Uh, and um, that doesn't mean that there's not inflation in the system, but you don't have inflation on such a wide range as you have now. So, so I'm, I'm cautiously con optimistic of lower inflation, but there are some inflation that stays. And unfortunately, we have very significant business in areas where there's a very tight labor market. And that means that there will be some uh, uh, pressure on, 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 on wages. For example, in Western Australia, where we have um, our big iron ore mines there, it is very difficult to, uh, to, uh, to get sufficient labor at this point in time. So there are some bottlenecks in the system, but it's not, it's manageable, and I don't see as much inflation as last year. CEO of Rio Tinto, speaking about Miller and I a little bit earlier on. Critty, the, the, the critical factor for these miners, though, is going to be China, and how China comes back is going to be hugely important. Now, these guys have got big operations down in Australia, they have a direct line into China. If China recovers quickly, then you do wonder whether or not actually what has been a difficult course of this time round might turn out to be a better one next time. Yeah, it's really interesting because I feel like Rio Tinto was the go-to play for a good chunk of last year when we we're talking about the property sector slump in China, to your point, Guy. And it's not alone. If you look at BHP, for example, a similar story. If you look at some of the other commodity players as well, Vale is another one um, that is seeing the same idea. But I think so much of that recovery in China was really hinged on the COVID recovery as well, and now kind of seems to have separated just a little bit. Um, the idea that is Chinese growth in the next decade still tied to the COVID story, and I don't think it is. Doesn't feel like it, and certainly the, the market is is beginning to to reprice the idea that the Chinese recovery is going to be bumpy and difficult. It seems to be at the moment that that we are seeing upgrade after upgrade in terms of expectations for what, what that economy is going to deliver. Property is likely to remain a difficult area, but this is an economy that is going to need a lot of iron ore. In fact, the Chinese authorities are clearly very nervous. They're trying to manage this process. Uh, but you would have thought that for, for some of these big miners, China may be back. We just don't know yet quite how much it's going to be back. Anyway, hope you enjoyed the show. This is The Cable. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. We are on tenterhooks waiting for the Fed Minutes, which come out at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. here in the UK. Uh, I'm Guy Johnson in London, Kriti Gupta over in New York. Kriti, we're basically just kind of cruising sideways. Big move down yesterday, four stocks. The S&P now up by only two-tenths of 1%. I'm looking at the volume line as well. We're a little light on volume, so the market's definitely sitting on its hands. It definitely is. And I mean, look, this is all potentially going to change at 2 p.m. today. Uh, give it about 90 minutes uh, from now, 2 p.m. Eastern, folks. As we talk about the FOMC minutes, that's going to be the game changer. And if it isn't, then that just puts even more emphasis on the PCE deflator. And I think that's why you're seeing low volume and not a ton of conviction here. I mean, this S&P 500 only higher by two tons of 1%. Absolutely. And considering the size of the drop we saw yesterday, this yeah. isn't exactly a, a convincing bounce back. Right. We'll talk about more uh, about what is happening in the markets in just a moment. Before we do that, let's get a headline update with Charlie. Penn. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. London's tube drivers will strike for 24 hours on March 15th with commuters facing another spell of disruption. The strike on the underground will be followed by several days of industrial action on the UK's wider rail network. Unions remain in 
and dispute with bosses over pay levels, working conditions, and pensions. Economists say a deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol would unleash tens of billions of pounds in business investment for the UK, boost growth and hand the government more funds for public services or tax cuts. The conclusion by two prominent economists is a reminder of the economic fortunes at stake in talks about the post-Brexit trading arrangements for Northern Ireland. Bill Gates has acquired a minority stake in Heineken Holding, the controlling shareholder of the world's second largest brewer for about $900 million. And sticking with beverages, Starbucks, the world's biggest coffee shop operator, has launched a range of olive oil-infused beverages in Italy to boost market share in a country where it has struggled to gain a foothold. A foothold, the chain will initially sell its new Oliato coffee line only in Italy. However, it does plan to launch the coffees in the UK later on this year. Looking forward to it. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Olive oil and coffee? Yeah, I'd get on board with that. You, you would or you would not? Yeah, I can. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how about you, Creedy? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think Guy just had the whole olive oil and coffee experience. He was just in Italy. Oh, right? well, lucky him. All they right. don't, yeah, it's yeah, not so much olive oil in it. But but I can kind of see. I remember a while ago. So when I was when I was uh, doing super early, so I remember my producer and I trying various kinds of coffee. I think it was coconut oil or something like that. Coconut and 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 coffee and and it was meant to produce this kind of supercharged wake up coffee combination that would keep you going did it work i'm not sure it ever really worked i think it was just basically <laughs> both of us were so tired that that actually you would have had to have had a uh, a, a real rocket under us to, to kind of wake us up at that time in the morning. Guy, two-part question, it. and I got yeah. I got to have you speak for the entire United Kingdom. Is this going to be a hit <laughs> in the UK, number one? And number two, will rivals Costa and Nero jump on board the olive oil-infused coffee train? I think it's going to be niche, Charlie. Niche. Gotcha. You know, we'll I've see. actually never tried Costa coffee. Yeah, it's. I think, so. I think I'm missing out. Well, I don't. I don't want to run afoul of Ofcom, but just let me say it is one of many options available to UK consumers. <laughs> but it is also popular with people who are seeking an alternative to some of the uh, more prominent American brands. Okay. How's that well, for diplomacy? Costa Costa's owned by Coca-Cola. <laughs> yes, it is, and that's the great irony. And, and weren't they weren't they for a while owned by a UK brewer as well? Wet bread, wet bread. They yep. were owned by wet bread. Yep. Yep. Anyway, I'm learning so much. Yeah, I think I, I think <laughs> we've got very much. This off. is this is uh, we're, you know, we're sort of culturally educated, Chrissy here. I'm not sure she wants it, but we're gonna we're gonna do it anyway. <laughs> All right, cheers, mate. Thank you. Okay, let's talk about what's happening in these markets. So there's a bunch of things going on here, Chrissy, which I think are fascinating. In theory, Fed minutes from three weeks ago should be a complete non-event, particularly given the data we've had subs sort of subsequent to that last Fed meeting has been so good. So you would have thought that actually the Fed. what the Fed said three weeks ago would have been superseded. But if the Fed was hawkish then, how hawkish would it be now, given the data and the strong data that we've had? Well, more hawkish is is as as simple as it gets. But I think what's really crucial here, and I mean, I wonder how much the market will even react to this particular uh, report or um, minutes, simply because... After that, we got the slew of set of uh, Fed speak. The um, the one that really st- sticks with me was Loretta Mester, the Cleveland Fed president, coming out and saying, "Look, 
we shouldn't have stepped down to 25 in the first place. It should have been 50 in that last meeting um, and, and potentially even sticking with it. And James Bullard coming out with the same kind of uh, commentary as well, as well as Neil Kashkari, the Uber hawk, um, kind of doubling down on his his take as well. So I wonder how much of these minutes is actually going to be new information relative to the Fed speak that we've had. And I think if we don't see really any kind of mind-boggling developments here, you could actually see a, a potential rally on your hands because I wonder how much of the anticipation of the yeah. Fed minutes today was priced in yesterday. That, that's true. I think obviously yesterday was the day that felt like the, the market finally waking up and believing the Fed. But it, but if the Fed is... See, I think they're going to be a non-event. I think these, I think these minutes could be a non-event if they are dovish. And that would kind of jive with what we saw from, from, the, um, from, from Jay Powell's press conference. But if it turns out they were talking about having to go further, if they were talking about potentially going back to a 50 basis point hike or having to do more in those minutes, then I think the market will take it very badly today. So I think there is, there is the opportunity today for, I think, a, a kind of the market going, shrugging its shoulders and it being a non-event. I, I, I struggle to see where the rally comes from today on the back of this. I think if they're hawkish, I think it's a problem. If they are not hawkish, then the market's going to dismiss them. Yeah, that's all I have to say that I agree. <laughs> I think I think the hawkish part, this is where I think positioning really comes into play. And I, I can't give too much insight on this because some of the flows are kind of confusing here simply because we are in the last five trading days of the month. So some of this is going to get kind of confused with rebalancing and what yields are doing and all of that. So there might not necessarily be a fundamental narrative to what we see at 2 p.m. today. But also keep in mind, I think some of the earnings story is going to seep back in as well, especially going into tomorrow's trading session um, here in the States, because you have NVIDIA reporting after the bell. That's a major heavyweight that could come yep completely change the narrative, not just for the states, but globally. Think of NVIDIA's reach here. So I, so in, NVIDIA, so here's, here's my take on NVIDIA. Yeah. Um, in theory, NVIDIA should be struggling. The PC market, and you've seen what we've seen today from Intel, yeah. big, big kind of uh, cut in, in its uh, return to shareholders. But NVIDIA now seems to be a proxy for AI, for this whole chat GBT thing. Because in theory, they have the best products on the market to serve the kind of processing power that is going to be required. Now, I was talking to Mandeep Singh about this uh, a little bit earlier on. He's not entirely, entirely convinced they have the right products, but but the market is seeing them as a proxy for the chat GBT stories. They may look through the weakness in PCs and say, actually, we see this as an AI product. Well, this is part of the broader narrative with NVIDIA specifically, and argue some of the chip makers, because pre I want to say 2021, which is a very recent development. You had a lot of these chip makers, Intel, NVIDIA, AMD, making one very specific type of chip, and that was their entire business. NVIDIA doing um, graphics processors. Uh, you had AMD doing memory chips specifically. Intel was kind of diversified with the PC market. Then I think about a year ago, NVIDIA came out and said, look, we need to diversify ASAP. And it really came yeah. out with uh, AMD saying, we also need to diversify and kind of fuel the metaverse. And now they're in this market of, OK, how do we make every kind of chip possible and ramp up capacity around the world? We're going to talk to Mandeep Singh in the next block, next block about this. So let, let's think about kind of what questions we should be asking him here. The other thing I think is interesting about the earnings season is that actually, if you look at U.S. equities, they barely budged from the start of the earnings season to the end of the earnings season. In some ways, the earnings season has not moved the dial. Will NVIDIA change that a little bit later on today? We will just be discussing that next. This is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Kuri Gupta over in New York. So there's a couple of big chip stories that we want to be talking about. Intel is down around 1% right now, which... Actually, I don't think relative to what we've had today, it's a very big reaction. So Intel has come out and announced today that it is going to slash its dividend, Chrissy, by 66%. Now, that will take it to the lowest payment rate in 16 years. 16 years. Yet the market has barely budged. I guess maybe the market was seeing this one coming. Maybe this was inevitable. Yeah, maybe. I mean... With Intel, it's interesting because we know they've had dividend cuts in the past, but it's never been of this kind of margin, 10, 15% maybe. And you've seen this across the board, but 66%. Oh, my gosh. And this comes yep. after Pet uh, Gelsinger's kind of turnaround plan. What happens? Well, I think part of it is that, that, A, the PC market is slowing down pretty rapidly, so they had to factor that in. But also, this is a company, as you say, that is that is going through a, a, a kind of turnaround plan, but it's also, it, it is investing hard. You've had the Chips Act in the United States. There's a desire to reshore. Uh, and maybe actually investors are saying, yeah, they, they have to do this. They're not actually changing some of their expectations in terms of when they're going to deliver key technology. What they're saying is that basically they're going to have to invest to get there. Yeah, and I think it also comes down to, I mean, look, the the margin story. I mean, this is going to be a story every single earnings season, but specifically this earnings season, I feel like it's really been a success or failure kind of metric for a lot of these companies broadly, but for chips especially when there are dealing with that geopolitics piece of it. Yep. If you don't want China exposure, you are not buying chip stocks, and Intel is like the poster child for that. Well, so, so chips, I think you've got to be a bit more, I think you've got to be quite nuanced with the chip sector. Because if you look at the automaker, it was interesting, we were talking to Stellantis a little bit earlier on. If you're exposed to the chips, it, it, to the auto sector and you're a chip maker, and there's a number of Europeans that, that are, they have done quite well. So it really depends on what part of the product market I think you're exposed to. Uh, Mandeep Singh joins us now from Bloomberg Intelligence to give us his take. Mandeep, what do we make of the Intel sort of dividend cut today? Was it inevitable? Is it actually a good thing? Does this give them the ability to invest more? reflects to me, you know, the company-specific issues that Intel is facing. And look, you know, Intel is uh, such a big brand when it comes to the chip side of things. And uh, the problem that they have had, you know, is not just uh, uh, tied to the cyclical aspect of uh, what's going on right now, but it's more the missteps that they have had over the years in terms of not being able to catch up to TSMC on the process node side, as well as not kind of going beyond their traditional PC market. They completely missed the mobile uh, processor side of uh, the market. And now even with data center and AI and all the new stuff, they just don't have enough exposure for a company of this size. So I, I would say it's a combination of bad uh, execution as well as lack of you know exposure to the new stuff. You know, Mandeep, we were just talking about this uh, in the last block, the idea that a lot of these semiconductor companies, NVIDIA is the example we'll use here, have been trying to diversify very, very quickly. And it feels like Intel, to your point, has not really been able to do that. What will it take for them to catch up? Well, so uh, look at, you know, 2021 numbers. Intel was a company that was generating about $20 billion in free cash flow. And at that point of time, investing $30 billion in CapEx was okay. I think investors didn't mind that. Now that they are uh, not generating any positive free cash flow, it 
really begs the question, how long can they keep spending $25, $30 billion a year? And look, uh, the CHIPS Act and, you know, what Europe is trying to do uh, with supporting, you know, onshoring of uh, chip manufacturing is helping or will help on the CapEx front. But still, there is no kind of uh, near-term visibility as to when Intel may be able to run their operations in a positive free cash flow basis. And I think that is where... I don't see the light right now at the in in terms of when that will happen. Probably all these things when they come online, you know, fab investment takes multiple years. 2025, 2026, they will have the right exposures. Maybe they could sign more packs with, you know, fabless companies in terms of longer term commitments and that could be a catalyst in terms of, you know, driving the market sentiment. We're going to get Nvidia a little bit later on. Um I find Nvidia fascinating. It, it was, it, in some ways, it was the crypto stock. Um, it's got pretty decent exposure to the PC market, which in some ways is going to be a drag. But now it seems to be the AI stock as well. What is Nvidia? How should investors be viewing this? Yeah. So look, Nvidia has been around for a very long time, similar to Intel. You know, they've been around thirty plus years. And what Nvidia has done well is use their niche in gaming to really expand into this new market on the data center side. And now it's morphing into AI and ChatGPT. Basically, you know, they are the number one chip when it comes to executing large language models, you know, large training type of workloads. And uh, there is no other chip that does it better. Look, I, I think over time, you're gonna see more vendors expand into this category. Intel is doing the same. The thing about NVIDIA is they have at least a 10 year head start. And that is years. their, yes, almost 10 years. They, they kind of plan this out in a way where it happened incrementally, but no one else really focused to that extent in terms of looking at that parallel processing on the GPU as a market that could be billions of dollars. And guess what? It it did happen over the last two years when it, uh, now everyone is talking about AI and large language models. But really, they made that investment 10 years back and they incrementally kept improving uh, their every iteration of their chip was better and and that's why they have this kind of lead but chip as a market you know it tends to commoditize over time like it's not as if they'll be the only gpu maker three years down the line the thing is they will still have that sizable share because everyone is standardizing on nvidia chip right now and and that is hard to unseat once it's established you can see that with intel on the pc side it's still intel chips mostly i mean it still dominates the market even though it's losing share and and that is what I mean. Like once you have that scale and you're established, it's hard to in, unseat the incumbent. Well, which then brings us to the dividend question for Intel: a 66% slashing. I think we're looking at what 12.5 cents. I think um, is this kind of a precursor for the chip industry broadly? Could we perhaps see some sort of dividend cut from Nvidia after the bell or some of these other things? Or is this an Intel-specific story? I think it would be more Intel-specific. I'd be very surprised if NVIDIA was to cut dividend. I mean, NVIDIA has got such healthy free cash flow right now. And with all the demand that they're seeing on the data center side, uh, look, I think that's the beauty of a fabulous operation. You don't have to invest in constantly upgrading your uh, you know, chip manufacturing infrastructure, what TSMC and Intel have to do. And uh, they, you can just outsource that chip development to whoever is doing it best. Right now, it's TSMC. Tomorrow, if Intel catches up, NVIDIA, I think, would outsource some of that to Intel. And and so I think uh, 
NVIDIA's biggest threat comes from somebody coming up with a better GPU or even large tech companies like Meta or you know Amazon doing their own GPU in-house. That is a bigger threat, but I, I don't see them cutting dividend. I mean, that would be a very far-fetched scenario. Mandeep, so good to catch up. So good to get your insights into what is happening here. Those NVIDIA numbers uh, coming after the bell today. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Technology Analyst Mandeep Singh. Let's turn to what else we're about to get, and, and that comes in the form of Fed Minutes. They come out uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern. They relate back to the last meeting of the, uh, the FOMC circa three weeks ago. Uh, the market is watching these very carefully because the data have changed so much since that last meeting of the Fed. We've had a blowout payroll number. We've had strong CPI. Uh, the uh, the earnings season has gone relatively well. All of this sort of coming into the mix. And the market's looking at these minutes saying, what clues can we derive from these minutes? What are they going to tell us uh, about where the Fed really is, how hawkish the central bank is? Uh, joining us now to uh, talk about this is, as ever, Bloomberg's Mike McKee, uh, joining us now from D.C. Mike, what are you expecting from these uh, from these minutes? I'm not expecting a whole lot for the reasons that you talked about, Guy, but uh, I do think there may be some clues we can glean out of the minutes to uh, what the Fed might be thinking. And uh, part of that is based on the fact that uh, Loretta Bester and Jim Bullard both have said that they would have advocated for a 50 basis point hike at the last meeting on February 1st when we thought inflation was going down rapidly and the labor market was starting to cool. So things are going to pick up. Uh, as they have uh, so far since that meeting, then it may be that more of them would be interested in raising rates at a faster pace. That's a one, one thing to look at. And the other is uh, what kind of talk was there of uh, going above their previously stated uh, consensus terminal rate of 5.1%. Uh, did they think at the time that they would still need to go higher? Uh, if they if there's not, no mention of it, then it isn't going to help. But if, if they did talk about that, then that would set Wall Street off. But Mike, put this into context for us with some of the speakers that we've heard in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Loretta Mester, for example, you interviewed her, Bloomberg exclusive. Um, James Bullard as well, talking about, well, maybe 50 basis points was the way we should have stuck in the last meeting. Isn't that basically what we're going to hear from those minutes? Yeah, they ruined the surprise. <laughs> it would have been fun to discover that little nugget in there, but now we already know that. Uh, that that's going to be one of the key points uh, that we'll see in the minutes. But, of course, they don't mention them by name. So we'll be looking to see the uh, modifier that is used. Uh, some, uh, many, uh, a few. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see if we can characterize the number of people who felt the same way. Now, Messer said she wouldn't have necessarily voted that way in uh, on February 1st because she didn't want to surprise the markets, but she said there was a case for it. So maybe they make the case in the minutes, and that could be applied to what we see when they get together on February, uh, March 22nd. And that's a key point, too, is we're only halfway between the two meetings. Yeah. And we have changed 180 degrees, as you mentioned, Guy, but uh, we could change 180 degrees more with another jobs report and another CPI report and another retail sales report. But the issue here, though, is going to be one of communication, isn't it? The the If you were to return to 50 basis point hikes, I, the, the, the impact on the market would be absolutely colossal. So this feels like a kind of nuclear option from the Fed's point of view. I, how... How strong would the data have to be, do you think, at this point to get the Fed back to 50? Probably matching the kind of things that we have seen. 
uh, it would have to be something that would create urgency for them. And uh, I mean, one of the arguments is at this point that we're still expecting them to get to that uh, 5.1% level, which would be uh, five and a quarter percent in terms of the range. So uh, the top of the range. So if they're going to go another 50 basis points and they are worried about economic data, they could do that all at once. But you're right. It would be a matter of communication. They would start laying the groundwork for that. And it, it would also be, I think, fairly obvious to the markets that the uh, economy has fallen back and they would need to do more. So by the time you got to the meeting, it wouldn't be a shock. Mike, it feels like 2022, there were so many prints on the payrolls front, on the inflation front, even the Fed front, where the economist survey really got it wrong um, for, for several months. It created this kind of dynamic in the market where kind of bad news was good news and good news was bad news in, in the market. Are we returning to that kind of era when it comes to Fed policy and what the peak policy rate actually is. And the reason I ask this is because uh, you and I were discussing earlier this week that the peak policy rate right now prices in the markets are five and a half percent, potentially six if you're looking at uh, certain parts of the market. But if you look at the Economist survey, it's still about 5.2 percent. Talk to us a little, bit about, a little bit about that divergence. Well, uh, markets are taking a worst-case scenario in pricing for it because they can reprice immediately, where, as uh, the Economist survey uh, you're mentioning was out this morning on Bloomberg News, uh, is once a month, and the Fed is once every three months. So they're never going to match up in what they're thinking at any one particular time, and that's why I think it's, it's hard to draw a conclusion from what we will get today, because it's uh, what they were saying three weeks ago, and we still have three more weeks until we get to the next Fed meeting. So, I, you know, the, the markets go up, the markets go down. I don't think the Fed pays too much attention until we get very close to a meeting time. Mike, looking forward to your coverage. It's always fantastic. It will be again today, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. here in the UK. Fed minutes will be dropping. This afternoon session in the U.S. is going to be fascinating to watch. Bloomberg's Mike McKee joining us from D.C. While we've been speaking to Mike Criddy, Mark Gurman has dropped a story onto the Bloomberg Terminal, which I think is, is fascinating. Apple has had a breakthrough in a secret bid, which has been running for years, basically to produce a glucose tracker that doesn't involve a prick through the skin. Um this would be this would be huge if it could do this this would obviously have a meaningful impact on the millions that have diabetes that have to manage their insulin um it's going to have a big big impact as well on companies like dexcom and abbott labs which produce some of the products that that diabetics use currently yeah and it's interesting i'm gonna throw some facts out here for our international audience roughly one in ten americans have diabetes and to your point it is an invasive technology that they have to use it's also starting to hit shares of dexcom of abbott that create some of those patches to monitor diabetes but those yep. two are invasive and this is a multi-billion dollar industry guy that we're talking about enormous and, and it would it would really solidify apple in the healthcare arena as well i guess been moving in that direction obviously the watch product monitors and tracks a whole range uh, of um of biometric signals but if it could do this i think it would be absolutely huge and would certainly solidify its place there it's enormous and the wearables business to your point accounts for about 11 percent of apple sales and i think this is also bringing to the forefront the question of what comes next here does it get scrutiny something that fitbit and alphabet has had to deal with in the past Absolutely. We'll continue to watch this story. Apple shares certainly reacting to it. Um, 
Hope you've enjoyed the show with Critty and me. Uh, we'll continue to monitor, obviously, what is happening here on Bloomberg, the markets, as we count you down towards those Fed minutes. As I say, 7 p.m. UK time, Fed minutes drop onto your Bloomberg terminal. This is Bloomberg. 